And on your sheets is Psalm 77 and Psalm 13 as well. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the, day, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now to turn to Psalm uh, 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Uh, my name's Andy White. I'm one of the congregation here at Emmanuel Epsom. Uh, a very warm welcome to you. Um, I hope you slept well. Uh, not all of us sleep well. Some sleep very well. Uh, I'm reliably informed that I snore and that generally I sleep pretty well. But I know uh, that not all of us do that. And um, the psalmist here in Psalm 77 was not having a good night. We all know what that's like. Uh, he was finding it extremely difficult to sleep. And... Um, it struck me that as we were hearing the sinks being interviewed, praying for um, Daniel and Catherine and little Matilda, and knowing what we do about each other's lives and some of the difficulties that we have, just as people, never mind as Christians, 
It struck me that this passage really does speak into many of our situations this morning. And I hope this will be helpful. And if you're listening, Daniel and Catherine, at some point or other, uh, this is really for you. So I'm not going to be talking about the times, the trivial times when you can't sleep for particular reasons. We all have those. Hopefully we don't have too many nights when it's almost impossible to take your mind off the situation that you're facing. But you know what I mean when I describe that kind of night, when it's virtually impossible to put your head on the pillow because of the thoughts that are raging through your mind. That's the kind of night that the psalmist was having here. The, the kind of night when the chips are down, there appears to be no one that you can turn to, and all you can see is essentially driving you to despair. There doesn't appear to be very much hope on the horizon at all. How do you cope in those situations? And if you're human and old enough, you probably know precisely what I'm trying very poorly to describe. We all know these times, some more than others. I was thinking about this, um, the old blues singers, um, uh, the original blues singers lived in the Mississippi Delta. They knew a lot about this. And I, I, I was trying to think of a, a song that might capture some of that, but I couldn't. I was thinking of uh, a later song, I think, it was written in the 1960s by Ray Charles, who came from that, that kind of blues um, uh, tradition. And he wrote a song called Hard Times. And uh, just a couple of lyrics from that. Uh, if you know the tune, hum along. <laughs> My mother told me before she passed away, said, son, when I'm gone, don't forget to pray, because there'll be hard times. Lord, those hard times, who knows better than I. I soon found out just what she meant. I had to pour my clothes just to pay the rent. This is a bit of pastiche by the 1960s of the old blues singers, I'm afraid. Because there'll be hard times and so on and so on. Had a woman who was always around. But when I lost my money, she put me down. Etc., <laughs> etc. <cetera>, et <laughs> You can find humour in the old blues singers. <laughs> but seriously, how do you cope? How do people cope if they don't have a, have a Christian faith? How do they cope with uh, all kinds of situations that they may face? Um, my wife Maggie and I have been uh, watching a series on... Uh, in fact, it now comes up on ITV3. We think it's an old BBC series called The Street. I don't know if you've ever come across it. It's a very powerful set of dramas set in a Manchester working class street. And uh, there's two particular themes that run through every single episode for me. Um, it's, it's about the lives of very ordinary people and how they get into really difficult situations and how they get out again or don't. And uh, there's, two, there's two particular things that strike me about every episode. One episode is the poor choices that people make that often bring them into those situations. But then secondly, how they cope with alcohol. And it, it feels very real, this series, because um, the way people speak and the way people think is how we are. 
And the way people just go to drink, which is so cheap and so easy to access, it's very striking. And um, it's worth saying, I mean, we in the church sometimes are slightly behind the curve when it comes to social issues. But there's no doubt, if you asked any newspaper commentator today, the UK is awash with drugs and alcohol. It's just a fact of life. And you can get virtually anything for any price that you want to. And um, I think it's important that we as a church recognise that and we as a leadership want to say to the church, we don't want to judge anybody, we want to help. So when you do face hard times, hopefully you won't find us coming along and judging you, as Ruth was saying about some of the families that she's met. But actually you want to find help in your time of need. So we offer that to you. But how do people cope? Well, we know how they cope when they hit hard times because we do exactly the same, if we're really honest, from time to time. We overeat, we drink alcohol, we take drugs, we retreat into sick mode. Uh, I'm, I'm just getting over man flu, and at least half the congregation know how difficult that is. <laughs> we can become obsessed with work, we can become mentally unwell. We all do these things from time to time and we're prone to use our learned coping mechanisms because we think that that will solve the problem. There's a lovely old hymn which we don't sing anymore. It's based upon um, a particular text in the Old Testament. Um, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, cistern being a source of water, a source of fresh water. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Very picturesque, and we all do it. When anything happens, so just recently, to take a very poor example, my son crashed the car, and he was very fortunate to walk away from it, but I was left with all the frustration of having to deal with the insurance company. And it uh, brings out the worst in me. And uh, it was one of those hard times for me. Small H, small T, I'm sure. But it was a hard time for me. And I struggled. It took me at least 10 days to sort it all out. And I won't go into the detail, but they did send me six letters, all of which contradicted each other. And, um, but how do we react in situations like that? Well, we're not always proud of how we react are we? Um, and some of these hard times can be very hard indeed. You may be bullied at work or at home. You may have lost your job. You may have been diagnosed with cancer. You may have lost a partner or even a child. How do you maintain stability and equilibrium and not descend into madness or despair? Let me just ask one more question just to drive the knife home just a little bit further with a little twist. How can you sing in those circumstances? The Psalms, the critics say, and I'm sure they're right on this particular point, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Second Temple. The Second Temple was like a shed compared with the First Temple. And it was uh, the temple that the, the people of God built 
when they came out back out of exile, back to Jerusalem. And they built this thing, and it was about the size of this. It was nothing like Solomon's temple at all. But, and the Psalms are what we now know uh, are a, a collection of 150 songs that became the hymn book of the Second Temple. And I asked Peter to read Psalm 13 just to make this point that the, the Psalms are not all happy. Psalm 77 and Psalm 13 are just two examples of really rich, deep Psalms which are, if you like, negative in tone. They're struggling. They're full of anguish. Sometimes they're despairing. And they, they seem to resonate with us in those hard times. They're not happy, clappy at all. Many of the Psalms are. Many of the Psalms are full of joy. Uh, joy in God and in circumstances. But the Psalmist very often... Um, has this richness of access to the full range of human emotions. And uh, the interesting thing is that if that's true, that the Psalms are the hymn book, then these are meant to be sung. I think that's true. I've been reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer recently, and he says that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Second Temple. Well, he would do because he's a German Lutheran and they use hymn book, uh, they use prayer books. But actually he's, he's right as well, of course, because not only are these songs, they're also prayers. But how can you sing in a situation like the psalmist is facing here? How can you sing? It's for the director of music and it's for Jejuthun who was a choir leader that you can read about in Chronicles. Well, let's get to the psalm. Sorry about that long introduction, but I'm trying to lead us into a point where we understand something of what the psalmist is feeling. We don't know the circumstances, by the way, in this particular psalm, that the psalmist faced. But in a sense, that doesn't really matter. What we need to understand is what he's feeling and what he's trying to express in his faith as he reaches out after God. Fortunately for me, the psalm seems to divide very simply into four parts. It's part of which, uh, and part of the reason which I chose it, because it's one of the easiest psalms to understand. Verses 1 to 4. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. Here is a man in anguish. The first thing to note here is this, that the psalmist is quite unashamed to talk about how he's feeling, even to the extent of doubting God, which we'll come on to uh, in parts two and three. And that's an, a very important point for us to make at the very outset. It's not wrong or abnormal to get like this. It's okay to feel like this. Um, some Christians you find will tell you 
Don't be morbid. Don't let things get you down. Put on a happy face. It's not right for the Christian to be down in the mouth. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Saviour all the day long. That doesn't resonate with my experience, and I'm sure it doesn't with yours either. We sing songs sometimes of aspiration that are not completely real or true. And I understand why we do that. Much better to be honest, though, in our singing. And there are, as I say, some other psalms which are like this. Psalm 13 is just one example. What about the Book of Lamentations? Have you ever read the Book of Lamentations? It's a very powerful book of negative emotions about what God is doing to judge his people. So, if Johnny was sitting here at my right, I would be saying to him, where are, Johnny, these songs of anguish, of lament, of struggle today? Let's write some songs that express different emotions than simply joy and happiness. So, here's a second thing to notice about this particular first section here. Do we cry out to God when stuff happens? Stuff does happen in our lives. Um, my family will, uh, will tell you if you ask them, I ask you not to, but they'll tell you if you ask them that I'm a great grumbler. And uh, they're very tolerant of me. And from time to time, I take my grumbles with me into church as well. And poor Maggie has to explain to our friends why I'm grumbling that particular evening or whatever. But uh, if we're honest, that's not true just of me, is it? It's true of all of us. Is it always your first instinct reaction um, to seek God when you feel disappointment, sorrow or pain? Is it not our first reaction very often to blame somebody, perhaps particularly um, the person you live with or the people you live with or the person who has some power over you or the insurance company uh, recently for me or whatever it is because it's easier to do that than to come to God with our complaint. But the psalmist goes to God. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. Let's come on to this second part. Look at verses 5 to 9. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Has God changed? It feels like it sometimes. And the psalmist begins to question God in a serious way. How can God love me when he leaves me in this situation? If God is God, he could take away this situation or he could lift me out of it. But he chooses to leave me here. Why? Has he gone as far as rejecting me? 
Look at Job, after all, how God treated him with minimal care and support, it seems to me. Do you not sometimes feel this way, that God is angry with you and has even turned against you? You thought he loved you, but in fact, when the chips are down, what you sense is his disapproval, his displeasure, that he doesn't treat you as a father would treat his child. Now, if we're honest, we are on thin ice at this point, aren't we? Because we, if we go too far, we're starting to doubt the very goodness of God. But that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's on very dangerous ground. Will the Lord reject forever? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? You see... This is one of those nights, not when you just can't sleep, but when your soul is in anguish and despair and your faith doesn't make any sense at all. Now, other faiths would never dream of questioning God like this. That's the interesting thing. They would say, no, you could never question God like this. He is all-powerful. He is other. He is unapproachable. But the Judeo-Christian God is one who can be questioned and he is not threatened by our questions. That's a surprise. Seeing as what we know and believe and understand about God is self-revealed, is that he's all-powerful. But in a way, you know, he welcomes our questions. But the psalmist is at the point of losing his faith. He's at rock bottom. And it's true, isn't it, that our emotions can often cloud our better judgment. And what we know of God from what he has revealed about himself in the scriptures can feel very far away from our experience. And it doesn't feel as though those truths are true anymore. They seem false. And then the doubts start to creep in. Have I been fooled all along? And have I been stupid in believing that God cares at all about me? For the Christian, this is quite a challenge. For the atheist, life is simple. It's nasty, brutish and short, which is what John Stuart Mill said about life. It's nasty, brutish and sure. Because there is no hope for the atheist and uh, there's nothing to cling on to for the atheist. The simple, blind judgment of evolution. There's nothing that you can trust there. And you as a human being are tossed around because you're simply a collection of atoms that are left over after a star has exploded. That's all you are. Life has no meaning, and so when stuff happens, you just have to get on with it as best you can. And the atheist is hopeless and defenceless. Let's go on to the third section of this psalm. 
That's verses 10 to 15. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Now the Christian at this point <coughs> is making um, a decision. Faith makes a decision to choose a particular path. And very consciously the psalmist is saying, I've set out all my doubts, all my uncertainties and all my fears over there. But I'm now going to do something. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. So faith makes a decision to choose a particular path, and that is the path of remembrance. What do I know already of God? What can I cling on to? What can I remember that will help me in my situation? He starts off by remembering God's character. Did you see all those things that were noted as we went through those verses? Verse 13, the holiness of God. Your ways, O God, are holy. Also in verse 13, the greatness of God. What God is so great as our God? He's incomparability. Verse 14, this is the God who performs miracles. He breaks the laws of nature in order to intervene in history. He displays his power. You display your power among the peoples. And verse 15, best of all, with your mighty arm you redeemed your people. This is a God of salvation. This is a God who has intervened in space and time and done something to redeem his people to himself. Now the psalmist makes a clear choice um, and chooses to go down this path of faith. And what that involves is remembering what God has done in the past and the kind of character that God is that's the foundation of all those acts in history. There's an old saying, isn't there? It's not so important what a man does, what's, uh, uh, what he says rather, it's what's really important is what he does. And the psalmist is clinging on to what God has done. It's the same with the various gods on offer. What do they really offer at the end of the day? Well, the Christian faith offers that God has done something in history to redeem a people to himself. He is a God who saves his people in history, in time and space. This is not just the psalmist remembering what God has done for him personally in his life. Sometimes our, our faith can be very small and we remember what God has done for me personally. And it's very important that we have that. But what the psalmist is also including here is what God has done for his people collectively. The God who has kept his promises, verse 15, 
to Jacob and Joseph. And this brings us to the ultimate purpose of God. See, when you get down into the very depths of despair, actually, what that leads you to is thinking about, well, what's God ultimately doing? His ultimate purpose is to gather for himself a people of God, a community, a family of which he can be proud. Those of you who are fathers, one of the great things that you have, maybe, is pride in your family. It's a lovely golden feeling, some of the time anyway, about the children that God has given you. The ultimate purpose of God is to gather to himself a family from every tribe and clan and nation on earth. And he will be glorified in the gathering of that family. That's his ultimate purpose. And remember how the psalmist does this. He does this in a particular way. Verse 15 with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. He looks back to the Bible. He looks back to the historical events and narratives of the Old Testament to remember how God intervened to redeem his people. And when you're in dire straits, when you're on your last legs, often it drives us back to the Bible to remember what God has done for his people. Because you're only going to find that information there. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're going to find it in the Bible. The Bible is utterly reliable. We're meant to open it and read it and meditate upon it. And that's what the psalmist does here. He's driven back to the scriptures which tell him of what God has done in history for Jacob and Joseph. Let's look at this last section here. This is slightly different, and I want us just to notice that. Verses 16 to the end. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and rise. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. The psalmist remembers two things about God. They're not immediately obvious, so I just want to point them out. Some of the Hebrew, Hebrew um, poetic forms don't immediately um, kind of find traction with our 21st century Western ideas. Um, but what this Hebrew poet is describing is the way of God in the storm. Now, in Hebrew thought, um, that was a reminder to him of two things. Firstly, the creation. God has created all things by his power and for his purpose. And there are creation elements in this little song here. You notice verses 16 to 19 are slightly, well, they're very poetic, aren't they? They're, they are song-like, and it's, as it were, it's like, I understand songwriting as being very simple, really, in 21st century terms. You write the verse, the chorus, 
there might be a bridge in there somewhere and there's some kind of resolution at the end. That's my basic understanding. There might be an intro as well. But that's my basic understanding of how you put a song together. I'll never make millions with that. But in Hebrew poetry and in Hebrew songwriting, it's a bit different. There's all kinds of different things going on, and I won't go into that. But essentially what you find here is language that is describing God's action both in the creation and also in the exodus. Let's go back to God's ultimate purpose. We believe that God created the universe. And God's ultimate purpose is going to be served and he will bring it to pass. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. It's almost one of the defining things about you as a Christian is that you believe that God created the cosmos for his glory and his purposes. It's a great comfort to the Christian, you know that, because if God created the world, the universe, and everything in it, and all the diversity and wonders of the universe, which we're only starting to understand now, the red dwarfs and the white dwarfs, and the it's mind-boggling, almost literally, the great thing is for the Christian is that God created all of that to bring about his purposes that one day <laughs> he's going to set it all aside. The New Testament tells us that actually in the fulfilling of God's purposes the heavens and earth will be burnt up and a new heaven and a new earth will be made in which will dwell righteousness and we're going to be there living forever perfectly with him in what I think is going to be a world that's not a million miles from this world in terms of the way it's set out, but it will be glorious in a way that this world just touches upon. And we will live with bodies in a world something like this. Now that's, again, it's touching on God's ultimate purpose. But this is what God created originally. The other elements in this little uh, part of the song here remind the psalmist of God intervening for his people at the Red Sea. Did you notice at the end there? Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. It's a picture of Moses and Aaron leading God's people out of um, uh, Egypt to the Red Sea where God traps them between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Now, can you understand where the psalmist thinks he is? He's there, trapped between the Red Sea, which he cannot possibly cross, and Pharaoh's army. He can see the dust thrown up by the horses and chariots of Pharaoh's army coming over the horizon. And that's where the psalmist is, right there. But he says, God, you are here in the storm with me and your paths lead through the waters. Now in Exodus 14, you find exactly that story. And Moses and Aaron have led God's people at his command out to this place, this desert place, and they're trapped. And you can all, I'd love to visualise these things sometimes 
if I'd been there, and you can, you can see the dust and almost hear the horse's hooves coming over the horizon as Pharaoh's army are going to chop you down. And there's the Red Sea there. It's impossible for you to cross. And the people cry out to Moses. I'm just going to read just a few verses of where they got to. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. <laughs> that encapsulates a lot in one word there. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the, the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, and this is very striking, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I won't read any more of that, but it's an amazing part of the story. And the fear and the dread and the helplessness that the people of God felt in Exodus chapter 14 are part of what the psalmist is feeling here. And what does God do in that situation? He saves his people and he judges his enemies. He parts the Red Sea and even the little ones who've just learnt to walk walk through, not through mud, <laughs> but on dry ground. And as the chariots and riders follow, the walls of water come crashing down, drowning them all. The, the, uh, the chariots and horses of, Israel, of Egypt you will never see again. How does God do this? This brings us to the very last verse of the passage. How does God do this? You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now the Christian knows that whenever Moses is mentioned in the Old Testament, his saviour is typified, prefigured. So Moses is the great prefigurement, the great figure that points forward to the Messiah who is to come, who is the perfect one. Throughout the Old Testament, every prophet, priest and king that ever came, there was a thought, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ that had been promised in Genesis chapter 3? So every time there was a new king crowned, people had in the back of their minds, is this the Messiah? You can see it in the Jewish communities today. Uh, over the world, every time they get a new rabbi, they think, is this the Messiah? And um, when Moses is mentioned and referred to in the Old Testament, 
what we're thinking about is a prefigurement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Moses does here in Exodus 14, Christ ultimately um, achieved for his people in the cross and resurrection. So what's the psalmist doing? He's looking back to a specific point in the history of his people at the events of salvation as prefigured in the Exodus. So what do we do when we lie awake at night and we do not find the answers to our difficulties? What do we do? What can we do? We can remember the gospel, what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ. And that brings three things, very, very briefly, because I've gone on for long enough. It brings three things. It brings comfort. And what you really want when the chips are down and you're feeling so low is you want comfort. And the gospel is a great comfort to the Christian. It brings perspective. You can think differently about your situation that it's part of the plan of God. You can think differently about God. You can think differently about yourself, about others, about the situation that you're in. It gives you perspective. And then it gives you resolution. There's an answer to the, the particular problem that's plaguing you at this time. It may not be the answer that you want, but the gospel is God's answer to all our difficulties, whatever they may be, that we trust in Christ and he will bring us to that new heavens and new earth. Now that is an amazing thought that gives comfort, that gives perspective and that gives ultimately resolution to the particular difficulty that we find. So if God has done that for me already, He's achieved my salvation and the fact that I'm getting nearer to the day when I will see the resolution of all that God has promised me in Christ, that is enough for me and I can trust him. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you that we can trust you in the situations we face in our lives. We pray again for uh, Daniel and Catherine and for little Matilda and for the family around them. We pray, gracious God, that you would have mercy upon them and help them to trust you at this difficult time. We bless you for the gospel and for the comfort and perspective and resolution that it brings to us. We bless you for these things now and we sing to you in our next song and we, and we raise our spirits to you and thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Amen.